Good evening. I'm Vernon Reed, uh, chair of, of the board of the Inner Pratt Library, the board of directors and trustees. Our president, Carla Hayden, uh, could not be here tonight. So on behalf of Carla Hayden, the board, and our wonderful staff, I'd like to welcome you to a very special Writers Live event here at the Pratt Library. We're honored to host and welcome to Baltimore the founder and CEO of Teach for America, Ms. Wendy Cobb, and wish to thank our partners, Teach for America Baltimore, for bringing Wendy here to the Pratt Library. Teach for America is a vital partner of the Baltimore City Public School System. Teach for America's mission is to eliminate educational inequity by enlisting our nation's most promising future leaders in the effort. The Pratt Library is an equity provider in Baltimore. I look at it as being at the intersection of education and community service. Last year, kids read over 200,000 books during the summer reading session. It was 30,000 kids. And we had more than 2 million visitors in the Pratt system last year. I mean, if you look at that 2 million visitors in the Pratt system, that's more than all the fans that attend the Oriole games and the Ravens games combined. Now I'd like to introduce the Executive Director for Teacher of America, Baltimore, Ms. Courtney Cass. Thank you. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's so exciting to have all of you here representing our students and our teachers and not just the Teach for America family, but many of you who support our work in, in other ways. Um, for a conversation tonight with Wendy Kopp and Freeman Rabowski about Wendy's new book, A Chance to Make History. As many of you probably know, Wendy founded Teach for America in 1989 as part of her senior thesis at Princeton University. And as Vernon said, the idea was to enlist our nation's most promising future leaders in the effort to fight education inequality. In the last 20 years, Teach for America has grown to 39 regions nationwide. Today, there are more than 8,000 teachers and 20,000 alumni in this effort. <laughs> Teach for America Baltimore started in 1992, 18 years ago. In the past 18 years, Hundreds of teachers have come to Baltimore through Teach for America from all over the country. And I see many, many of those 500 alumni here tonight. So thank you all for the work you're doing for our kids. As teachers, as principals, as 28 members of Dr. Alonzo's staff, as a state senator who may be here, and as a member of the city school board. In the past two years, we've doubled the size of Teach for America from 160 core members to our current size of 320 first and second year teachers, many of whom are also here tonight. Those teachers are impacting 20,000 students in Baltimore City. We have 84,000 kids in Baltimore City, which means that one in four of our students today had a Teach for America teacher in their classroom. Wendy's book, A Chance to Make History, is what she's learned over 20 years of this effort. She talks about what's working at the classroom level and at the school level, and what's beginning to happen in entire systems where we're seeing opportunities shift for kids. 
She talks about the tremendous challenges involved in this work, which all of you who work in the classrooms every day or who run schools or who support us from afar are very aware of. We are honored to have Freeman Rabowski here tonight. As many of you know, he is a leader in education in Baltimore. Freeman has served as the president of UMBC since 1992. His research and publications focus on science and math education with a special emphasis on minority participation and performance. Freeman has won numerous awards in his time leading UMBC, too many for me to, to list all of them for you right now. But for some highlights, in 2008, he was named one of America's best leaders by US News and World Report, which in both 2009 and 2010 ranked UMBC the number one up-and-coming university in the nation and among the top colleges and universities for commitment to undergraduate teaching. So thank you both very much for being here tonight. And the way that we're going to do this is we're going to begin with a conversation between Freeman and Wendy. But then because we have so many of you who have different perspectives and ideas, um, we really want this to open up for question and answers. So I believe there are note cards that you should have. And if you don't have, they have these lovely ladies have note cards. And you can write your questions on the note cards and then pass them over here and we will do some question and answers at the end. So with that, thank you all for being here. Thank you. So perhaps, can you hear me in the back? Can you hear me in the back? I'm a math teacher. I'm always waiting. Are you awake back there? Great. Perhaps the funniest story of the night is that Wendy and I were having fun with a group of seventh grade girls doing math. And we realized we were absolutely lost when trying to find where you were. So we saw things getting quiet, and we were, where are we supposed to go right now? And somehow the girls finally pointed us down this way. This is a special night for us here. I can think of no one throughout the last half of the 20th century who has had a greater impact on the thinking of Americans about public education than Wendy Kopp. Would you give her another round of applause? It seems to me, I, I, I was thinking about it last night, Wendy, it, it seems to me that the reason you have been so phenomenally effective is that you have convinced large numbers of people that it is worth our time and effort to invest in public education with our funds, with our attention, and with our commitment. And the fact that you have people here from all kinds of backgrounds. And to invest in education about other people's children. Americans are accustomed to thinking about their own children. But the fact is that for some time, because people thought that we were not making progress, people did not believe it was possible for their commitment or their funds to make a difference you clearly have shown that it's possible. You decided to write this book, and you decided to write it now. The question, the first question, why now, and why the title? Some would argue you've already made history, and yet it's very interesting. Is it just out of humility that you call it a chance to make history, or why the title, and why now? Um, so, and, and I would actually say that really, and, and the reason I wrote this book uh, was to try to communicate to a broader audience what I've learned 
from our teachers and our alumni and, and many others who we work alongside in communities about the possibility to, to actually solve the problem. And I think, you know, clearly the idea of Teach for America was one that magnetized so quickly so many, so many, you know, college students and recent grads and supporters in so many communities. But I think it's, it's really what I've learned from you all in classrooms and now in whole schools and in whole school systems that's led me to realize we actually do have a chance to solve the problem. Um, the book actually takes its title from one of our teachers, Megan Brousseau, who finished her two years teaching in the Bronx a year ago. Um, she walked into her four classes of 112 ninth graders and said to them, this is your chance to make history. Um, her kids were coming into her room significantly behind. They had, almost all of them had learned English or were learning English as a second language. Almost all of them were living below the poverty line. 20% of them were reading more than three grade levels behind. She was teaching them biology and they'd had very little exposure to science before she started teaching them. And she spent some time before meeting her ninth graders, asking herself, you know, what she was going to try to accomplish with them in, in, in this year, and came to believe that what she needed to do was call upon them to take and pass the New York State Regents exam in biology. Now, this is something that most students in the Bronx don't do. It's an optional test. You can opt into it. And she had a theory that if she could help her kids actually accomplish that, that it would make a meaningful difference in, her, in their lives, that they would convince themselves and others that they actually had what it takes to be on a college track. And I kind of recount the incredible levels of energy and discipline um, that she and her students engaged in in order to ultimately meet that goal. You know, she convinced them that if they worked hard enough, they could get there, that that would make a difference in their lives. She got them on a mission. She rewrote the whole curriculum so that she could actually meet them where they were and, and have any chance of catching them up to, to actually be able to accomplish that goal. You walk in her classroom and you would just feel the sense of urgency uh, because she's teaching in such a purposeful way. She realized she didn't have enough time, so she figured out how to get her kids there early and keep them late. And she had 75% of them coming to school every Saturday. A year into this, 112 of her kids passed the New York State Regents exam in biology. Um, and they did so with an average passing rate, nine percentage points higher than New York City's average. And again, this is, you know, including all the specialized high school kids and, and whatnot. So the reason I titled the book A Chance to Make History is because I think the most salient lesson that we learn from the Megans of the world is that we can solve this problem. You know, when we meet kids who face so many extra challenges with high expectations and extra supports, um, they prove that they can excel on, on an absolute scale. Um, and, you know, this was not about Megan making history. This was really about her setting her kids up so that they have the kind of education so that they can pioneer the future and, and make history. And, and that's really what I think, you know, that's what inspires everyone who's a part of Teach for America, just the thought that, you know, we can give so many kids who right now don't have the chance to fulfill their true potential, the chance to fulfill their true potential and to chart really the history of our communities and, and of our country. Great answer. For the teach, how many people are teachers again and Teach for America teachers? I'm sure every one of them would agree, can you hear me? Everyone would agree that this work is noble, that you make a difference, and that it's very hard. Because what works for one child may not work for the next. 
we are having this national conversation right now about what we have to do to get beyond these wonderful examples to the broader picture. How do you transform a school? How do you transform a system? Ultimately, the nation. The question for you is this. What's wrong with the conversation right now? And why do you use such phrases as no shortcuts, no silver bullets, stop blaming this group or that group? What is it about the conversation right now that leads you to have this need to struggle with how we get people to even talk beyond Teach for America, to talk about the challenge of underachievement and the achievement gap in our country? Okay. So, you know, and and I almost want to back up and say one more thing about Megan. So I think we can learn a lot from her example. You know, she shows us not only what's possible, but that there's nothing elusive about this. This isn't someone who was born to teach, who has a magic charisma. This is someone who you know, had high expectations and and went about doing whatever it took to actually set her kids up for success. But getting to know Megan, there's something else that I I at least am very struck with whenever I meet the Megans of the world. And it's that, honestly, this is not the answer. Like, more teachers going to super heroic extents to make up for all the extra challenges their kids face, all the weaknesses of the system, As long as we have kids growing up in today's system, we need as many teachers as we can find who are willing to do that. But in the end, sadly, there are only so many Megans. I mean, I've only met, after I spent time in her class, I went up to her and said, where did you come from? Like, how were you created? What I think is so encouraging, and I, you know, about the last 20 years in this, is not only what we've learned from, from the Megans of the world, But what we've learned from the numbers of folks who have gone out and actually kind of recreated schools so that they would take whole buildings full of kids who face all the challenges of poverty and put them on a trajectory to have the kind of Megan-level results. And because what those schools are showing us is that, I mean, they don't make it easy, but they make it easier and more sustainable to actually, you know, provide kids with a transformational education. Um, And the reason I I start there in answering your question is that personally, I think, you know, we now have arguably, you know, I don't know, hundreds, three or four hundred schools that I would say are transformational schools. You have some of them here in Baltimore. I was just in Atlanta um, where, you know, the five KIPP schools Take kids who come in in the fifth grade in the bottom 30th percentile of performance against the national norm, and by the time they're in eighth grade, they're in the top third against the national norm. That's a transformational school. Whenever you spend time in these schools, you realize there's nothing elusive about what creates a KIPP school or a high-performing traditional school or, or any other school that's getting those results, right? There's nothing magic about it, but there are certain things we need to understand. If we were basing our policy decisions and our philanthropy in the lessons that can be learned in these these very high-performing schools, I believe we'd have a different set of, of policies and a different set of outcomes than we have today. So we've been at this for 20 years. In 20 years, billions of dollars of philanthropy, one committed political leader after another, we have not moved the needle at all against the achievement gap. If you look at the data, in an aggregate sense, we have not. So why is that? What's wrong with the national conversation? I actually believe, and, and you know, 
best of intentions, like a lot of people want to solve this problem tomorrow, but don't have the deep grounding in the lessons that can be learned when you spend time with the Megans of the world and in these very high-performing schools. And so as a result, we tend to oversimplify, and we let ourselves lurch from one silver bullet solution to another. This is the year of the teacher. Fix the teachers. We'll solve the problem. As I've already said, I, I don't have a lot of hope. I mean, you know, it is very hard to be a transformational teacher outside of the context of a transformational school. We could go back over the last 20 years and name the years. Believe it or not, we had the year of the project-based curriculum. We've had the year of just revolutionize everything with technology, make everything a charter, give parents vouchers. That'll create a market. That'll solve everything. And it's not that all of those things aren't important pieces of a broader puzzle. It's just that no one thing is going to solve this problem. And it, it, unfortunately, the lurch distracts our energy from the things that are actually most core to the solution. You know, people have to be impressed by your honesty in saying that we still have that, that very, very challenging achievement gap. I think I've spoken in 45 states to school boards. Not one state in this country can say it doesn't have the same achievement gap. And the gap is this, as you said, uh, the average black or Hispanic child who makes it to the 12th grade reads and computes at the level of the average middle-class kid in the 8th grade. And it's continued to be just that way. And that's in the best situations where the kid made it to the 12th grade, right? So you've been authentically honest in the approach. The question is this, what gives you hope that we can narrow the gap? You've seen examples. And what must we do to move beyond the silver bullet, bullet approach? How do we go about having the honest, robust, an analytical conversation in the same way that people at T. Rowe Price have it about the economy, or people at Hopkins have it about health care. How do we get to that level of rigor in the conversation? Um, I love this question. I mean, so I have had the incredible privilege of, of spending quite a bit of time in in some of these high-performing schools in, in our lowest-income communities that I've been talking about, charter schools and traditional public schools where incredible school leaders are making it happen within the, the regular system. What I've come to see from across these schools is that not only are they proving what's possible and showing just remarkable levels of student achievement, but they're showing us that there's nothing elusive about this, right? So every one of these schools, first of all, embraces a very different mandate than most of our schools embrace. Like they actually set out to put their kids on a different trajectory. They commit themselves and, and are run by school leaders who assume personal ownership and accountability for ensuring that their kids attain a level of academic success, a level of character strength necessary to ensure that they have the full range of educational and professional options in front of them. That is a very different, and, and I want to just pause there. This is not what our schools do. It's not what our private schools do. It's not what our public schools do. I went to a public school, supposedly one of the best public schools in America. It, that wasn't its mission. Its mission was to put learning opportunities in front of kids. Luckily for that school, we all showed up on a trajectory to graduate from college. That's what our socioeconomic background predicted. So we went through this school. We came out on the other end. Our trajectory wasn't changed, right? In this context, in the context in which we're working, 
if the mission of the school is to put learning opportunities in front of kids, the kids' trajectories won't change. And because, you know, their trajectories predict one thing, unfortunately, those aren't the outcomes we need. So in this context, these public schools that decide to make this happen embrace a different mandate. And that's the starting point. Now, that's a very ambitious mission to set out to accomplish, incredibly ambitious. So what do they do? They do what the most successful leaders anywhere do when they're going after very ambitious missions. They focus massive amounts of attention on attracting and developing strong teams, on building powerful cultures that align the kids and the kids' families and the staff on the same mission. They manage aggressively and they do whatever it takes. So when they realize we need a lot more time, we need more supports for our kids, they find a way to make that happen. Now, I think we can learn a lot. So, so there's nothing else. I mean, you know, we could, no doubt, if we had school leaders up here, they would make it all more articulate and whatnot. But the bottom line is spend time in these schools. I've asked so many of these principals, what is it? What is it that's happening that's different here? And they give you the blank look, like, what are you looking for? It's nothing magic. It's all the basics. So the question is, how do we get to the point where we have whole systems of schools that function like that? And, you know, I think, I think it is encouraging. I mean, we have no systems, to Freeman's point, that are proof points yet where we can say, oh, well, there's one that did it. Let's see what they did. But we have systems that have made dramatic progress in the last, within the last decade. And so we can look at what are they doing differently. And I would say that what they're doing is they're grounding themselves in the lessons that can be learned in those schools. So two things primarily. One, they realize that we've got to move to a culture of accountability where we are empowering our school leaders to and holding them accountable for attaining tremendous results. That's not the culture we have now. Right now we have a maze of requirements at every level built on a goal of protecting our kids and a lack of trust of our educators. So we try to micromanage everyone in the p- picture to do the right thing. And yet when you spend time in these schools, you realize, whoa, these are people who are breaking all the rules. Like they have taken, if they haven't been given, a different level of personal responsibility and a different level of flexibility over doing whatever it takes to get there. So that's one big thing. The other big thing is there's no way to get this kind of, to have successful schools without a totally different level of commitment to the people in the puzzle. Like, if we don't make an all-out effort to attract and develop not only teachers but school principals and everyone else in the system um, who, who will have ultimately the skills, the foundational experiences and whatnot to actually make this happen, we'll never get there. And, and that becomes so striking whenever you spend time in these incredible schools. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that per- perhaps no topic in our society, in American society, is more difficult to discuss than race. Uh, And few people have been taught to be comfortable in discussing race because our parents did not know how to discuss it in mixed company, if you will. Um, Anyone who has taught in the schools, and I'm looking at the Teach for America people, would know that it is a sensitive matter that there are times when you understand the culture of a child and times when you don't, and there's a lot to learn. I think about somebody in the audience somewhere, Betsy Sherman talks about being the only white teacher in an all-black school. Years ago, 
and all that she learned. And what, what came through as I first talked to her about this was she just cared about children. And she was learning, and she got beyond that and just moved on. But that's the rare situation, except that now Teach for America clearly has brought in a lot of smart kids of all races, and you're talking about wanting more diversity. How do you go about helping talented young whites understand how to be most effective in working with poor black and Hispanic children, and in some cases, talented middle-class whites in working with poor white children in rural areas, for example? What's the approach that Teach for America uses, and what gives you hope about that? Well, you know, and, and we're on our own journey, of course, um, on, in, in this realm. We've gone about, particularly in, in the past few years, really trying to understand what are the competencies that differentiate our teachers who are most effective in working across lines of difference. And we've identified certain competencies, mm -hmm. which are now kind of foundational in our, our training around, as we say, diversity, community, and achievement. Um, you know, a couple of them would be, I mean, one, our most successful core members take an asset-based approach. And so when they meet their kids and they realize, I mean, of course, many things, they're facing many challenges, but they have many, many strengths. And so focusing on not only the strengths of their kids, but also of their coworkers and colleagues and families is, is clearly one huge differentiator. Another um, that we talk a lot about has to do with what we call internal locus of control. Uh, it's a huge differentiator among our most successful folks. You know, you imagine kind of two teachers um, teaching in the same environment and, you know, both of them by the third week have totally hit the wall and realized this is an immensely challenging situation. And one of them says, what am I going to do to fix this problem? And the other says, it's the kids, it's the families, it's the system, and, and sort of looks externally. Mm -hmm. and, and so how do we, you know, both select teachers who will who demonstrate in their past that they actually have an internal locus of control, and then how do we build a culture in our organization, and how do we train people uh, and develop them so that that's their instinct? Mm -hmm. You know, I have a, a, a mentee that I share with my wife, Jackie. His name is Josh Michael, who said to me when he was a freshman, white male, out of Columbia, brilliant young man, uh, one day I want to be superintendent of Baltimore City Schools. And, and I said, Why? And it was amazing to hear him say, because those children can do so much, all right? And he's worked on that. He's now working with a great principal, I'm told. And I bring it up for this reason. You talk about transformational. I think he's one of those will be transformational, right? My question is this. You talk about transformational schools, transformational teachers, transformational school systems. Struggle with me on what that word means. Give us more specificity on the yeah. term itself, transformational. And that's going to be my last question when we get to the audience, okay? Um, I mean, I started using this term, and, and clearly it's one that's way beyond me and Teach for America, but to try to conjure up for people what is possible. I mean, we have been living in an incremental world in education where, you know, whole school systems determine that a couple percentage points gains on state proficiency exams are a victory. And, and it's not that, I mean, we want to see state proficiency results go 
up every year. Mm -hmm. But what we've learned from the Megans of the world and from this generation of the growing numbers of very high-performing schools out there is that we can actually have, to overuse the word, transformational change for kids, meaning change that is actually going to have a meaningful difference in the opportunities that await kids at the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so I don't know, that, that's, why, that's why I, so I think the question is not, and if, if we ask the question, how do we produce more and more incremental gains, like every year a couple percentage points higher on the state proficiency exams, that's a maybe a different set of answers than how do we create whole systems of schools that are putting their kids on a meaningfully different trajectory. Mm -hmm. And I think this, now that we know that this is possible, like that's what we've learned in the last 20 years. No, we didn't know that was possible 20 years ago. That's why I think we have the chance to make history because today we know that's possible. It's no longer a question of whether we can make that happen. It's a question of whether we will, like whether we will actually make the tough choices and and go at this with enough determination to get to the point where we do do this at scale. So as people bring me any questions they have, just one more question that's a sticky one. There are days when you don't feel as good as, some days you feel better than others, am I right? It's the human experience. Some days you're up, some oh. days you're down, right? I had a get, bad morning, I'll tell you. Did you? And it's relevant to this, oh, well, so I can share it. Well, I want you to do that because I want to say this. I mean, the, the young, particularly the young teachers are seeing you, this transformational leader, very positive. Give them the full human experience. What happens when you get knocked down? Because you've got knocked down, too, uh, when somebody has upset you, to say it kindly, or whatever. How do you deal with bouncing back? How do you get this resilience that we know teachers must have? Um, I'm trying to figure out what's shareable about this. Um, we won't tell anybody. We'll keep it among this group. But some of, I don't even know. This may not come out the right way. But some of you know I was here in Baltimore last night, uh, and I took the train back so that I could be at this meeting this morning, which was, which is sort of one of these commissions, one of the many commissions that has been pulled together to think about what, you know, this commission is about national security and education. Like, you know, education is critical to our national security. What are we going to do to finally solve the problems in education? And I sat in this room full of people, like, you know, influential folks, diversity Mm -hmm. of sectors and whatnot, some of them who have been having the same exact discussion as a part of 24 different commissions themselves personally for each of the last 30 years, um, and I listened to the discussion, and, and I thought I was going to die. And you know what? It gets to this question because, you know what? I think there's, and honestly, I left there with a totally new, renewed level of commitment to the work that we're doing. Because you know what, you all? People don't understand. There's so much to be understood. We know how to do this. We know how to do it. Those people clearly had not spent a lot of time in these schools that I'm talking about. They truly did not understand the drivers of success. And we're going to have another commission report. Whatever I said went in one ear and out the other. It was like, oh, gosh, this woman is a little kooky. Let's go back to listen to these business leaders talk. And honestly, honestly, we're not, I mean, we can sit through many more commissions. It's not going to happen until we have leaders 
at every level of our education system, at every level of policy, and across our professional sectors who have not only the intellectual understanding of things, but the actual personal experience of having taught successfully, having spent time in successful schools, who have, I mean, to your point, and I can't remember if this was a point here or a point before about, like, a lot of this is, it is about culture. You know, how are we going to build whole systems? I mean, the culture in the schools that are actually making this happen, these are powerful cultures. So how are we going to shape whole systems with powerful cultures? It can't happen without a deep commitment to the leadership development necessary to actually run whole systems with those kind of cultures. And honestly, unfortunately, it can't just be about the educational leadership pipeline because we've got all the people who are making our policies. And if they don't understand the true drivers of success, these poor people in the system are just going to lose their minds like I did this morning in this, in this meeting. So I, I, it, it redoubles my own conviction. I mean, literally, I just thought, that's the last task force meeting I'm going to go to. I'm just going to go focus on getting much bigger and much better. Like, we need to just marshal all the more of our future leaders in this direction, make sure that they are transformational teachers, something we're far from fully succeeding at, and then accelerate their leadership in education, in policy, in political leadership, in advocacy, and and in innovating the, the future as well. Great. I've got some great questions here that relate to what we've been talking about. One question is says this, how do we create public outrage at the situation uh, of our broken educational system, and how do we effectively advocate for our children in terms of system-wide change? That goes to that question of national uh, yeah. conversation, getting people to appreciate the challenge that we are facing. Mm-hmm. I actually think, and, and I think I quote in, in A Chance to Make History, Leslie Jacobs, who was one of the most instrumental advocates in, in the pretty radical change that's going on in New Orleans in saying that revolutions are made on rising expectations. And I actually think that, I think once, and we've seen evidence of this, you know, showing our communities what is possible, showing parents the kind of education they can expect, like that, the true movement is going to happen when we have enough of these high-performing schools out there that we have growing numbers of busloads of parents demanding change because they realize not only how... I mean, I think it's hard to know, like, I don't know, how bad is the status quo until you realize here's the alternative. So I think we need to keep plugging away at growing the kind of numbers of proof points, not only in whole schools, but ultimately whole school systems so that people realize, wow, something else is possible. Because once you realize that, I think that's how we'll, we'll change the conversation. Let me push back just a bit, because I don't disagree with you. One of the challenges is that sometimes people don't realize uh, where children fit academically. Um, a child in Baltimore City may be reading at one level and be told she's doing just fine, but if, if that same child was in a school in Montgomery County, she would clearly be in the bottom quarter. And, and I bring it up to say people have different standards depending on their expectations, depending on their own experiences. How do we help people involved in the process, from teachers to children to families, 
understand what it will take to succeed in American society, or what it will take not just to go to college. We can always talk about people going to college, but most Americans who go to college never graduate, and particularly kids of color. They get in, but they're in remedial courses there. So what do we have to do, as I'm suggesting, in addition to what you said, how do we go about getting them to understand what what it's going to take, both in terms of how much work they have to do, but also what the standards should be? And and this takes us in, I think, to a a tough and complicated discussion, but I I think that's the reason to embrace common standards across states and to invest in developing better and better assessments that can give us an authentic, true understanding of, of where our kids are yes. against those standards. Yes, yes. Very far from anyone embracing the idea that that I would agree with you. Do. It sounds so strange, but we're just getting to the point of understanding that um, algebra in Nebraska should be algebra in Maryland, that algebra is algebra. For so long, we thought every we're state We're still had debating that. I mean, we I spent so much time on Capitol Hill, and I'm telling you, you know, people believe algebra in Nebraska Local control. It's, it's different than in Baltimore. Very really. different from other countries. We, we agree. So uh, you are so smart. You know that? You really are. Maybe because I agree with her. <laughs> if there are, a little humor is good, right? If there are two things that the, a community, two or three things which a community could do to make a difference in moving us towards transforming a system, what would they be? Both a community and a, including the, the business community, the political structure, philanthropists. What are the two or three suggestions you have for Baltimore or any other place about things they could do to make a difference? Oh, gosh, this is such a perfect layup question. <laughs> um, I hope I can make the most of it. I mean, um, I don't know how to answer this coherently. One thing I would suggest is... so so. This has been a fascinating spring because I've been able to go from sort of one city to another and sort of understand the state of affairs in the kind of education reform movement in all these different places. And actually, this spring has given me an even greater sense of possibility that we can move the needle against this problem. And the reason I say that is one of these days I was just struck with the fact that for me this has been this incredible journey of first of all learning from a few of our teachers that actually transformational change is possible even in the context of big underperforming schools like you can teach in ways that are transformational again it takes super heroic efforts but it's possible and then you start seeing the patterns across those teachers and saying wow like that more can be done then you know got to see all these folks Teach for America alums and others developing whole schools like we didn't we didn't know that was possible like whole schools that would put whole buildings full of kids double triple quadruple their college graduation rates right and now i feel like we're seeing actually what's possible at the community level so when i say that so you know five years ago you'd go to any given community and they'd say you know this is great that you know in one place new york at the time serious changes happened but they have a mayor They have a mayor who took over the school system. We don't have a mayor who's done that. We have a dysfunctional school board. We've got a union that does this. We've got this. We've got that external locus of control, right? Now I end up in all these communities where people say, you know what? Our number one issue here is we've got a dysfunctional school board. So here's what we're going to do. Like, we created this organization, and it's identifying a slate of school board members who we believe 
will be effective and or electable, and we're going to spend the next year electing them. You know, and others who say our union here is a huge impediment, mm -hmm. so we're actually making sure that we have new voices at the table. There's this group of teachers who are organizing excellent teachers who want to be a voice at the table for their kids. There's this group of high-performing charter schools that's actually mobilizing their parents who know what's possible to be a voice at the bargaining table. You know, you just realize, wow, there's so much more than we assumed five years ago we could bring into our control. So I think my number one piece of advice, not knowing all of the ins and outs mm -hmm. of the state of affairs in Baltimore, mm -hmm. would be to say, have more dinner parties. Like, seriously, we need to come together and start talking about, so where are things in Baltimore? What do we know is possible? And what are we going to do to step up and and affect the, the big changes that we need to see to move things not just incrementally better, but to actually affect meaningful change for mm -hmm. kids. You, you talk in an interesting way. By the way, I would assume that one of the things you'd expect the community to do would be to somehow uh, invest more money in getting more Teach for America teachers. That's Is that right? A thing. This is what a college president tells them. Raise money. When they raise money, tell them they need more teacher America. <laughs> Although I do think the dinner parties are going to reveal. You know what? The problem is the biggest constraint is going to prove to be, of course, leadership. Like, sure. oh, gosh, who, who are we going to run for school board? Who, who's going who's to create the advocacy organization that's going to mobilize all the parents? Like, it's always, always, always like in this, like you just start banging your head up against the wall looking sure. for the talent, the leadership that has not only the natural ability to do it, but the foundational skills and knowledge that you need to have to do all these big things. And I think I don't even need to say Grow Teach for America because clearly we're one source. We need Grow Teach for America. We need to do lots of other things yes. so that we have sure. the talent and the leadership necessary to sure. take on the problem. Sure. Most, many cities have seen superintendents come and go every year or two. It's very sad. It's like musical chairs. Would you agree that Baltimore's having found a good superintendent whom we believe in, that one of the things we need to do is make sure we keep him? I, I, I tell a lot of people in Baltimore I would watch out if I were you. Um, so you all give the superintendent a hand right now. Would you every please give day a, I, a hand? Yeah. Because we have to... Yes, we have to. It's very important to let a superintendent or a leader know you appreciate him. Right? Am I right? I just throw that, that in for right. Baltimore. I think it is such a huge asset. And I mean, I'm looking at so many folks who've been here in Baltimore and have seen the ins and outs of education reform. And, and literally, I think we went through a superintendent a year until right. four years good. ago. And it's, it's a new day in Baltimore right. now versus then. So, yes, we need to give Andre Solanzo a yes. lot of love and support. Just an interesting personal experience. Twenty-some years ago, Bob Meyerhoff said to me when we were talking about problems at my university that he knew that if young black males had the opportunity of the opportunities that middle-class kids had, with support, they could do anything. And I often have asked him, why did you feel that way when most of what you saw on TV showed prison or something very negative? And uh, it was just clear, it was just something he had on the inside of him. Now, I'm thinking about internal, what we do on the inside. What do we need to do to help people believe, truly believe that these children of all types can excel. Expectations. What do we have to do? So 
and and you know not to be too fixated on Teach for America, but honestly, I think this is this is one of the most this is the most fundamental power of of Teach for America, right? Like we're taking folks who come in believing what you're articulating. I mean, they believe intellectually, all kids can learn, but when you learn through your own experience what's possible for kids, no one will ever, ever shake you from that conviction, and therefore your determination to actually do something about the problem is just at a different level. So I think, you know, personally, I think anyone who hasn't had that personal experience is going to lack something. Like, I really believe that teaching successfully in this context is the foundational experience for the greatest educational leadership and advocacy. I haven't done it myself, and I feel like that's a huge... That, you know, that's, that's a loss. Um, but at the same time, I think we can help other people understand what we know. We can spend time in these schools that are, sure. like, you know, proving what's possible and in these classrooms that are as well. And I think there's a lot, a lot we can do to help the community understand. When they see children who can read and who care and who are getting the support of teachers, they believe. That seeing it helps to believe. Great question. What would you do if you were Secretary of Education? How would you change the system? How would you go about changing the system? Um, you know, I think that the Secretary of Education is actually uh, trying to, I, I don't know that I could tell him to do anything better than, than what I think he's endeavoring to do. We have a huge opportunity in in the next few months in that we're going to reauthorize what has been known as No Child Left Behind, the Elementary mm-hmm. and Secondary Education Act. And... Um, you know, I think we've learned a lot in the last 10 years. Um, I believe, and I believe our Secretary of Education believes, that we've seen the power of, you know, resolving that we need to close the achievement gap in measurable ways and in requiring, you know, districts and states to disaggregate their data and report out. So I think that's one thing we actually do need to keep. But at the same time, I think we've we've realized the limitations of, of federal mandates. And if we can figure out a way to re-engineer our federal education resources, as limited as they actually are in the scheme of things, um, so that we're using those resources to incent the development of local leadership and capacity to actually achieve these great outcomes, I think it would be a huge win. And I, I think that our Secretary of Education believes that, um, and, and, and I think he's also a huge force for equity in spending and in, in resources across, you know, we need to be spending more on our kids who face the most challenges. What progress do you think is possible in the next 20 years? And do you envision a point in the future when Teach for America would no longer need to exist? See, I really think that if anyone had predicted five years ago where we would be today in education reform, I really think if I had said, well, here's where we'll be in five years, I think people would have just said, she's very naive, right? Like, we have seen... You know, we have to remember, like, five years ago, if we had all come together to try to agree on the most impossible to improve school systems in America, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, and Baltimore, I'm sure they would have been in the top five. And those are three of the fastest improving urban systems in the country. So um, we're seeing in many, many different ways that, that serious change is possible. I think we have an opportunity to now to step back recenter ourselves in all the lessons we have learned and in what we've we have to step back and also ask ourselves why haven't we moved the needle in 20 years in an aggregate sense we have to 
to sort of own that and analyze why is that. I think there's a pretty clear explanation. And so I think we have the chance in the next 20 years to make this happen, to actually 20 years from now, we've made radical progress in the last 20 years despite not moving the needle. We have the possibility of acting on all the lessons learned, throwing out all the failed strategies, and, and actually getting to a point where we mm -hmm. have an equitable, excellent education system mm -hmm. by 20 years from now. Someone said to me, and this is the question that I'm quoting, that Teach for America has been able to energize young white college graduates to be teachers and advocates for public education, which is good. But how can we also mobilize young black college graduates to be committed to teaching? So actually, um, you know, we actually recruit more African-American students, more Latino students, and more low-income students as a proportion of college students than we do white students and privileged students, mm. believe it or not. The problem, I mean, many more actually, the problem, and that is only through immense amounts of energy and, and resources on our end. I think people are still, I mean, immune to the magnitude of this problem. Mm -hmm. We just have no idea how serious the problem of, quote, educational inequity is. Um, 8% of our low-income kids graduate from college. And, of course, you know, they're disproportionately kids of color. 82% of our high-income, top quartile income bracket kids graduate from college. So what does that create? Take the top 400 colleges, not the top 13, not just the Ivy League schools, the private schools, the top 400 in terms of selectivity, including the historically black colleges, many of them, Hispanic-serving institutions, the big state schools, 5% of the students who are graduating are black, including international students, 5%. And 5%, 6% are Latino. 15% um, of the graduates are receiving uh, Pell Grants as one sign of, of being from a low-income background. So it's not, we need to be a lot more diverse if we're going to be successful as an education reform movement than the campuses that need to produce our teachers. And, um, you know, 11% of, of the African-American, 11% of our recruits are African-American, 8% Latino, 33% people of color in our incoming core this year, 25% are from low-income backgrounds. Is that good enough? Definitely not. I mean, we know there's an additional power you have when you share the racial and socioeconomic background of your kids when you're a teacher, but more, I mean, not, not that that's not massively important. We just can't be successful in the long run if it's just a bunch of white people running our school systems. It, you know, you think about even a Baltimore. If Teach for America is the main pipeline of the future leadership in Baltimore and we're just a bunch of white people, it's not going to work. So I couldn't agree more with the urgency that the question communicates. I just think it's, it's a real challenge given the very problem we're working to address. Sure. I think your honest, though, your honest answer helps. It encourages people. There's nothing like authenticity. How does Teach for America address sustainability? That is, that the turnover of teachers and teachers who start in schools and then leave those schools. And what do we need to do to encourage people to have sustained periods in those schools? Um, well, so much of, of this is about school leadership. And we see you know, and, and I'm not sure everyone probably has the same baseline information, but, you know, our folks come in committing two years, 60% of them teach a third year. Um, you know, they don't stay in as much as other beginning teachers in their schools, but 
it's like a difference of a few percentage points in the context of the schools in which we're working. What those statistics don't reveal, though, is that the retention rates differ dramatically across schools. So again, we see this is something that is within our control to solve. When you have a school principal who's building a powerful culture and is trying to maximize the talent in their school and charging folks with big responsibilities, they're far less likely to, to leave. So um, I do believe, you know, this is, of course, the downside of Teach for America, mm -hmm. but it's also, I think we just have to remember the context in which we're working. You know, we've got an absolute crisis in our country. Um, and I believe that this, I mean, it's a counterintuitive solution, but we're never going to solve the problem until we have leaders, definitely in education, thank heaven, I mean, 65% of our people stay full-time, long-term in education. If they didn't, I don't think we'd stand a chance of being an effective force. We need long-term, sustained, committed leadership from within. But as we saw, some of these folks have to leave, and they have to end up in those task forces and shaping our policies, or, we, or, or it's just we're never going to get where we have to go. So the, the question of people who are teaching and who've been teaching for years, it is typically the case that many people who are not in education would assume that most of those teachers are not very good, are not very committed, are burned out. Now, you know, I'm sure, there are a lot of really good teachers who've given their lives and who are quite competent. How do you talk about the relationship between Teach for America students and two types of teachers who've been there 25 years, some who are burned out and who can be very frustrating, others, though, who are angels because of what they do. How do you help people understand that not everybody who's been teaching 25 years yeah. is ineffective and that those 25-year yeah. teachers, quite frankly, can help young people understand how to be effective with children from yeah. very different backgrounds? Well, I'm so glad you asked this question. I mean, first of all, I mean, it, there's so many different levels of it, and, and we do a lot both to try to select teachers who will, in fact, approach their colleagues with respect and humility to build a culture of that and such. Um, but let, let me just share one story of a school I visited a month ago, because what I saw there captures what I really believe and, and what I think is so not present in our discussion right now about the real levers for change in education. So I go into the school in the Bronx, 370 kids, 32 faculty members, and there's a young principal who's a TFA alum, not too young. I mean, he's been, I don't know, he taught for three or four years, and he's been the principal of this school for three years. And um, when he took over the school, 10 of the 370 kids were reading on grade level. Very challenging student population, more than 40% special needs and, and whatnot, um, but still 10 out of 370. Okay. So what, what's everyone's perception of the school faculty? I mean, so one of these school faculty members, when he takes over as principal, says to him, you know, honey, I've been teaching in this school longer than you've been alive. She'd been teaching there in that same building for 30 years. And in fact, his school had the oldest, just pure data, teaching staff in the city of New York. This school, by the way, is on the, it's like an F school, you know, the accountability ranking the lowest of the low. So, I mean, we've got to say, like, these teachers, I mean, in our public discussion, it's like, get rid of them. Get them out the door. Okay. This school, which is now 
in the A category and has improved radically, right? Like they've got 60%, not 100%, they still got a long ways to go, but in three years, they've got 60% of the kids reading on level. They are one of the fastest improving schools in, in, in the system. How many of the f- faculty members do you think are no longer there? Two. Mm. Two out of 32. Mm. So to me, that just says it all. You know, like the teaching wasn't where it needed to be, but the teachers, many of them were actually okay. The 30-year veteran every Friday sends him now a spreadsheet showing how all the kids in the, his, her class are doing against the standards. So literally there'd been no leadership. There was no vision for here's where we're going to go. There was no sense of purpose. Like actually here are the outcomes we're going to strive for. There was no sense of team. There was a totally broken culture. Um, and, and this principle went about changing that. So I believe this is not a problem about teachers. This is a system problem. It's an organization problem. And, and this is the problem with the public discussion right now is we, we wish, I guess we wish it were easier, like fix the teachers and we'll fix the problem, but it, it isn't that easy. Give some advice to the teachers in the room. What, what would you have them think about as they work to remember how noble the work is that they do as the final piece of advice? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm very hesitant about that one because, of course, everyone's got a different circumstance and a different situation. I'm sure that you can listen to this discussion and think it's still like up here and, you know, the realities we're dealing with are hard and, and all of that. So I think it's very hard to have one piece of advice. I think one thing that I've been thinking a lot about alongside many others within Teach for America is you know, how do we do more to support and develop teachers who will, in fact, have a transformational impact for their kids? We know that, like, the Megans of the world, who is, I believe, was a transformational teacher, you know, we know that many of our core members are working incredibly hard and are having a positive impact, but are not putting their kids on a different trajectory. And I believe it's, it's actually really important to get to that point, and I think it's possible. And, and one reason I think it's important is clearly for the kids we're working with, but another reason is because once you've actually accomplished that with your kids, like that truly is the foundational experience for going out and actually changing the system in big ways because that's ex- the experience that leads you to realize truly what's possible and to have learned the lessons of what it takes to actually you know, make a meaningful difference for kids. So I think stepping back and centering ourselves in really what are the stakes for the kids we're working with. Like if, if we don't change the path that they're on right now, where are they going to end up? I mean, if they're going to end up at, at UMBC, then we're good, you know, but are they? Like, where will they end up? And if not, what can we do as teachers in the time we've got with our kids to actually put them on a meaningfully different path? I think it all begins with making sure you've got a clear answer to that question, because once you do, you can get the kids, their influencers, their parents, or whoever it may be working with you to actually accomplish that. And in the end, I think it'll become easier than, than not having everyone invested and aligned in, in, the same, in the same goal. Ladies and gentlemen, a true American luminary, Wendy Kyle.